Guys, good to be with you. Um, uh, well, you know, like Cole said, we're starting a, a, a prayer, or a series on prayer, on the, on the Lord's Prayer. Um, but before we get to that, um, I want to do this. We, we have a team of people from Mariners right now who are in Kenya. So um, there's, there's the team, and uh, there they are. And Kenton's hair is totally shaved. He's our senior pastor. I'd never seen him with a buzz before. He's not the guy totally bald. He's a couple over in the middle. But um, a team of people from Mariners, including some of our elders and uh, sort of our key leaders, are over in Kenya. And um, what you may not know is that Kenya, we have a really interesting relationship with Kenya as a church. That um, if you have been through or have heard us mention the term rooted before, rooted is a, you know, a 10-week experience in which you kind of get a, a picture of what it means to follow Jesus uh, in terms of you know, your own purpose, what it means to be a relationship and community, and, and sort of uh, have an idea of what it means to sort of worship and follow God. Well, that, that actually, that whole 10-week experience comes from our partner church in Kenya. They had a program that's not called Rooted, it's called Mizizi, which means rooted. Uh, and what, <laughs> there, the whole, yeah, I know, it's amazing how languages work like that. But, um, but we have a relationship with them, and actually that church, uh, Mavuno Church in Kenya, is hosting a conference called Fearless. And we sent some of our people to be a part of it, to help um, join in with some of it, and also just to attend it, to be a part of what, the church, what God is doing in the church globally. In fact, the church is expanding in all kinds of ways globally, while it may be sort of shrinking in America and in the West, it is blowing up in the Southern Hemisphere and in, and in, uh, in Africa and stuff like that. So um, would you join me as we pray for them? It just is there um, 5,000 miles away and, um, you know, in, it's sort of being together. So would you pray with me? Jesus, we're so grateful that we have a partnership with the church that is so far away. God, we know that if, as you send people across the globe, it isn't just merely to have a wonderful vacation. It isn't merely to see people differently or to see things differently. It is, God, to have an experience in which you rewire the way we experience reality and the way we experience the church. Thank you, God, that the church is global, that there is not one people that holds the church, that you, Jesus, are the one who is over and in all of the church. Lord, we pray that there would be new insight, that there would be new courage as they encounter this conference, this fearless conference. I pray that there would be new partnerships and new relationships. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would, um, you would speak to our people in powerful and significant ways that our church here, our community in Mission Viejo and in Irvine and Huntington Beach would be changed as a result of their courage and their courageous listening to your voice, Jesus. So it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are, like I said, uh, talking about the idea of, of, of prayer, particularly this, the Lord's Prayer idea. And we start this, this idea of prayer, generally, if you think about it, it starts with this sort of phrase, and you ask people, uh, how do they generally start prayers? They generally start with the phrase, dear God. And there's all kinds of ways that sort of dear God then sort of, as a preface, sort of sets up a couple things that come after it. If you ask little kids to pray, like around my own dinner table, or, you know, I pray with my kids at night, you know, and stuff like that. To hear my three-year-old pray, he prays things like, Dear God, thank you for, you know, our dog, Kirby. Thank you for macaroni and cheese. Thank you for popsicles on a hot day. I mean, these are the kind of things he prays. One time he even prayed for our, our, uh, our six-year-old daughter, and he goes, he's praying, my wife, we're at the table, and he's like, I want to pray. We're like, okay. So we're holding hands, is our tradition. Holding hands, and he starts to pray, Dear God, thank you for Molly. She's um, really nice to me, and she's hot. My wife and I looked at each other like, 
do we interrupt the, do we, we don't know what to do with that, she's six years old, we were kind of panicking a little bit, but he kind of went on with his own little cute prayer, the fall dear God. Uh, some of you uh, have, you know, prayed in desperation, dear God, help me find my keys. You know, I'm running late, dear God, help me find my keys, I don't know where they are, right? Some of us have prayed something like that. Some of us, uh, maybe some of you guys are, pr- are playing the, the Albertsons grocery game where they give you those, it's basically like the shopper's version of the mo- Monopoly game at McDonald's, you know, some of you are f- familiar with this, some of you aren't because <laughs> you don't want a million dollars evidently. But, you know, all of us are praying as we open up the, as we're, as we're playing this game, Dear God, please be CO4. C04 is the, you know, $1 million sticker. Everything else doesn't matter. But we know there's only one of those they're going to release. It's the end of this game, but, you know, dear God. Oh, thank you anyways. You know, like, that's kind of what we do. I, I asked people in our office, I was asking, um, well, I work, you know, in the Irvine campus, and I'm looking at all of the, the sort of our, our group of designer, graphic designers and stuff. I go, hey, you guys, I have a question. I go, this is kind of a, this is a, a Maybe not a fair question, and it's probably a big generalization, but what, what are kind of the prayers of desperation, of sort of panicky, shallow prayers that, like, women pray? And I go, I, I know this is a little, I shouldn't have said that way, and, you know, they looked at me like, what are you talking about? I go, well, you know, what's something you would pray? What's something that women would pray? And they, two of the women are, that are graphic designers in our office go, oh, dear God, please, please let me fit into these jeans. <laughs> That's true. I've never, never actually prayed that before, but, you know, they're... they're there's all kinds of ways in which people begin prayer, and they generally have things that sort of are sound, they sound like prayer, they sound like there's, there's these prayers, and nevertheless, they're very sincere, but they are pretty shallow. And a lot of us don't really have a good understanding of what it means to pray, and so, which is no different than the disciples themselves who asked Jesus, how should we pray? And so the way Jesus actually models prayer is he talks about this thing called the Lord's Prayer. And some of you, if you grew up in another tradition, you might have said it as part of your regular sort of church experience on the weekends. Some of you grew up in a tradition where it was called the Our Father. And the danger for us, as it's a prayer that's so often repeated, it's probably the most famous prayer in the Bible. It's definitely Jesus' most famous prayer. Is that it becomes something shallow as well. It becomes something tame or something we just sort of utter if we're used to it. It looks something like this. Some of you may have seen this. Maybe you had in your own house someone had given to you a needlepoint of the Lord's Prayer, you know, and you put it above your bed. Maybe look something like this, like this right here. This is, look at on the top. This is a quilt made by great Aunt Jessie. I mean, there it is. And there's this sort of cute child praying, and it's just sort of this, it sort of becomes a very safe, a very tame prayer by which we don't really care that much about what's being said in it. It's just part of what we do. And what I want to say is this. At the end of this series, having gone all the way through this and kind of broken down this prayer, it's my hope. And it's my belief that this prayer will become incredibly dangerous. It will become risky and revolutionary. And today, all we're going to talk about in this subversive revolutionary prayer is just the phrase, Our Father. That even in that phrase itself, there is this danger, this revolution that could come of it. Here's the the Lord's Prayer as it's recorded in Matthew. You can look at it right here. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, which just means be holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now there's other translations. Some of you might know it. that There's a later version of this uh, this prayer, which includes, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. But this is the way it's recorded in the most sort of reliable manuscripts in the Bible. And this prayer is introduced in a couple of ways. In Luke, the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, teach us how to pray. 
And he says, okay, here's how you should pray. And he has a version of this prayer called the Lord's Prayer. And then in Matthew, Jesus introduces this prayer challenging the existing modes of prayer. And he challenges two sort of ways in which people are praying at the time. If you want to, if you have a Bible, or if you want a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, and I'll give you some setup. If you want a Bible, you know, raise your hand, you, don't, you want to follow along, you need to have the pages in your hand to turn, uh, then someone will hand you one. Although I don't see people jumping up to get you one, which means we're going to put it on the screen for you, and you can follow along that way. If you choose to be a vigilante and run up there and ha- pass out Bibles, you're welcome to do that now. There's someone right there who just took on the role. She's going to pass out a Bible if you need one. But... We're going to follow along on the screen, or if you, if you have a sort of device that allows you to follow along, great. Here we go, Matthew chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 5. Here's what Jesus is kind of praying and explaining about how to pray up against. Anyway, here we go, verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room. Close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So the first thing he says is this. The first thing Jesus is sort of clarifying about prayer when he's instructing his disciples on how to pray is he says, don't make it a big show. Don't make it in such a way that everyone can see you, that they can recognize how how prayerful and how pious you are. Don't let everybody see and recognize you are a praying person. Instead, he says, go into your room and close the door. Now, what's interesting about that phrase is in the ancient Near East, People can't go into a private room and close the door. They don't have that. That's only an extremely rich person would be able even to have their own room. So what he's saying here is something that implies a different level of privacy. In other words, what he's saying is, because there is no private room for you to go to, what he's talking about is the condition of the heart. It's one in which you are not seen. You pray in such a way that nobody else matters except God. You aren't trying to attract the attention of other people. You aren't trying to elevate yourself as a pious person. Instead, go into the secrecy of your own heart. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not keep babbling on like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words, and do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, there's record of sort of the pagan, pagan prayers in which people would name every single god that they could think of. And because every region had a god, every place these people would travel, they'd acquire a new god and they'd begin to pray to these gods, trying to get them to wake up and do something. And there's a level of fear about the, in the pagan prayer that if they just, there's a belief that if they were able to continue to say things over and over again, that maybe God would hear them and maybe they could manipulate God into doing something that they would want him to do or any particular God for a particular reason. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't operate out of this kind of fear mentality. Don't operate with this kind of idea in which if you were to kind of continue to pray, you could manipulate or make God do something. That's not what this is about. Instead, he says, pray a little differently. Because Jesus, I should say this too, Jesus isn't opposed to public prayer. There's a, there's a number of recordings where Jesus is praying in public. And we know that as a Jewish person, he would have prayed three times a day in the, in the temple as part of a common practice. He certainly would have been opposed to that. And we also know that he's not opposed to persistent prayer. He's not saying you shouldn't keep praying for the same thing. What he's opposed to is something that is way different than that. He's opposed to a fear-based sort of prayer in which we either try to manipulate God or an arrogance-based prayer in which we say, everybody look at me because I'm so pious. And the Lord's Prayer is sort of a reframing of commonly held prayer sort of mistakes and beliefs. The Lord's Prayer is similar in form to a Jewish prayer that lots of, those, lots of his original audience would have understood. 
There's two kinds of prayer that people, scholars say that this sort of, the, the Lord's Prayer kind of comes from, in form at least. One is called the Amidah, which is a sort of a series of 18 blessings that this is sort of reducing down to a few. And the other, the more commonly held belief, is that it's in the form of something called the Kaddish. And I want to show you what the Kaddish looks like. You can see sort of the similarity. This is the Jewish prayer of the Kaddish. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon. And to this, say amen. You can see kind of the similarities there. Now what differentiates the Kaddish and all the other prayers that are sort of mentioned here is the way that his prayer, his instruction to his disciples, the Lord's Prayer starts. It starts differently than any of the other prayers and it starts this way. Matthew 6, 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Our Father. Over 80 times Jesus uses the word Father in the book of Matthew. 14 times he uses the phrase, my father. And only one time does he use the phrase, our father. In other words, there's a new level of inclusion for God's people in their relationship with God. Jesus is inviting people to share in the same kind of sort of prayer relationship, the same kind of intimacy that he has by saying the phrase, our father. How should we pray? You start with our father. He belongs to us, and we belong to him. Now, fatherhood in the ancient world looks a little different than sort of our sort of idea of fatherhood and childhood now. Children are powerless social dependents upon their fathers. In fact, in a patriarchal society, it's not, if, if a, for instance, if a, if a woman is widowed, and she has no male offspring, she has no male sons, she has no sons, then she is unable to own property and not allowed to work. It is the father in a patriarchal society which holds all the keys. And a kid is a powerless social dependent without sort of rights as we think about them now as our own sort of society. And kids are apprenticed to their fathers. In other words, to whatever trade their father was in, it was the it was responsibility of him as a father to pass that on to his children such that they would take on his own, his own trade, that they would one day be as the master is their father. So if he's... A, a, a farmer, that they would become farmers like him. They'd be apprenticed into that. If they're fishermen, they would become as fishermen. If they're carpenters, they would become as master carpenters as their father. All children apprenticed then to their father's work. Now, um, so when Jesus says, don't pray like the pagans, he's saying don't pray out of this spirit of fear or manipulation to try and get God to do something that you'd want him to do. Instead, he says, Pray as though you are children of a good father upon whom you are dependent and upon whose work you intend to take on as an apprentice. Pray like little kids. Now the imagery of father is deeply rooted in Jewish history. It starts out, the first time we sort of see this instance of sort of God as father is in Exodus chapter 4. And there's this picture in which God is explaining to Moses about rescuing God's people who are captive in Egypt. And he's explaining to Moses why, how, why this works. And he identifies himself as father. I want you to see this. This is Exodus chapter 4. It says this. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel, all the people of Israel, is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. So these are the instructions from God to Moses that he's supposed to give to the Pharaoh. And he says, 
Israel is my son, and I want them to be set free. In other words, the first way in which God identifies himself as a father is in the role of liberator from captivity. The first way he's identified isn't the one who takes kids to after-school sports or pushes them in the swing or all of that stuff. The way he is, he is identified here is this, the one who liberates from captivity. Israel's my son, and they're being held captive, and I want them to be set free. Now listen to this, verse 23. And I told you, I mean, this is God giving the words to Moses he's supposed to give to the Pharaoh. And I told you, let my son go, this is interesting, so he may worship me. That's kind of an interesting phrase. It's sort of, for in our understanding, we would think, let my son go, they're captive, I want them to be free, end of story, full stop, sentence. And yet there's this other thing at the end of it which says, so that he may worship me, so that they may worship me. Why? Worship is a kind of allegiance. It's an expression of belonging to something. We have all kinds of examples we could think of, probably if I was to take polls of you, of things that we belonged to, that we showed our allegiance to. Some people get a little crazy when they start imagining the things that they want to belong to. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen some of this. You guys ever, you know, they, this is the idea too, as I should say this. This is about identifying and aligning ourselves with commonly held beliefs with people and their practices. Like, for instance, have you ever seen like rabid Raiders fans? They like this, the Raiders fans. These guys are all accountants, you know. They're all mild-mannered, but when they, all of a sudden Raiders are in town, it's like, I'm Skeletor, you know, whatever it is that they do. This is them. And there's a whole, there's like 60,000 people in a Raiders home game who look about like that. And it is the scariest thing in the world. And there's this sort of alignment with principles and beliefs that go with this, that say we're going to take on all of the practices of the Raider nation such that anybody who would come into our, our arena would be intimidated. I'd be intimidated. Okay, then look, maybe perhaps you've seen these people. This is, this is recent, Comic Con. Have you seen these folks? Look at this. Seriously? <laughs> now, I just, there's a couple observations I want to make about these guys. First of all, <laughs> all of them are just a hair out of shape. <laughs> a few too many burritos for these guys. Now, there's a couple things you got to look at. One is there's, there's this sort of sense here that they got out of their car when they were at Comic-Con and thought, this is, this is, this is good. <laughs> I love that we did this. And then they're walking around and other people who would also be around them would be dressing up the same way saying, we've embraced this kind of way of living. It's our way of living. And some, you get this picture for this, from this, this one guy, you kind of see this varying degrees of courage here. Because... One guy's kind of got baggy yellow pants. The other guy went a little tighter with the blue pants. And one guy went, I'm covering my face and I'm going with just sort of the pleather underwear. And that's what I'm going with. And here I am. I mean, this is like, seriously? And there's this sort of idea of we're all about this together. This is the way we'll do stuff. And when God's speaking here, what he's talking about, you got to take that off the screen because people can't pay attention. There we go. When God's speaking, when God's talking here, about worshiping, it's that they would be free to worship. It is to say, I want you, who are my people, who I identify as my own children, to see me as father. And the way that you identify yourselves as belonging to me is in your worship, your dedication, in your alignment of yourself to things about me. Captivity is a restriction on worship. And it's a restriction on belonging to a father as his own kids. 
I just want to, I'm going to just rifle through, I just want to rifle through a few scriptures that sort of indicate this sentiment that goes throughout the entire Bible. But I'll just give you a little bit in the Old Testament here. Deuteronomy 14 says this, You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. In other words, here's what's being said. The people have begun to adopt some other rituals that other people they've been around, uh, kind of, they kind of enjoy. So, hey, the, I guess these people over here are shaving their heads for the dead. We should do that, too, and cut ourselves, too. And God goes, no, 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 no. Do not align yourselves with those people. That's not what we do. You belong to me. Deuteronomy 32, 5 and 6. This is, this is by the way, this is um, Moses is singing his, his sort of swan song. He's about to die, and he's kind of giving up his sort of leadership. And he sings this song, and this is what, how it starts. Start, this, is, this is kind of the way he begins his song. This is this. Deuteronomy 32. They are corrupt and not as children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you, informed you? Now Moses is saying, you have become distracted and you have stopped acting like his children. You've begun acting like he, you belong to something else. And he's got this kind of pretty harsh way of saying, you need to start acting like his children once again. Hosea 11, this is super clear. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, the Baals, and they burned incense to images. The more that I called my own kids to be with me, the more they went somewhere else and started acting like someone else should be their father. Jeremiah 31. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I, as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. In other words, my kids have wandered away. And they've begun to adopt new things as their own father and they've worshipped other things and they've adopted worship practices that, have, that are robbing them of their childhood and they're belonging to me and I will bring them back. The picture I have in my head in this sort of scenario is that one, you know when you're standing in a crowd of people and a little kid gets separated from their own mom or dad and they mistakenly sort of snuggle up to your leg or grab your hand as if it's their own mother or father's? You know what I'm talking about where you have that scenario? And you don't really know how to handle that because you don't, you don't want to look like you're so okay with it that you cause concern for the parents. And yet you also, that are somewhere watching, looking for their kid, and yet you also don't want to create this sort of shock like an animal jumped on your leg you know go out because then the kid's gonna have this total trauma so you have this kind of you have to kind of excuse me are you looking for your mom oh and they inevitably the kid freaks out oh my gosh you're not my mom wow what what did you do with her man they just cannot figure out because in their mind they were safe holding your hand or snuggling up to your leg and all of a sudden you made mom vanish it's your fault probably now i want you to imagine the scenario slightly differently imagine even if you don't have kids that your own child is, you, is separated from you for a moment, and you, set, you, say, you see them over off in the distance, and you sense that they're kind of gravitating towards someone else's hand as their, own, as their own moms or dads. And you see them begin to grab the hand, get a little bit more comfortable, and then they kind of snuggle up to the leg as if to be safe. And they look up, and they lock eyes with the person above them, only they don't get scared or freaked out. They're like, yeah, this is pretty good. This is, is going to work out. <laughs> and the, this other now pseudo-parent is like, hey, why don't you be my child? And the two of them hold hands. And the kid seems perfectly fine. And the other person gives them 
cotton candy, which you don't allow in your house. But, you know, why not? You know, and so they're walking, and they walk, they start walking to their car. And they open up the door to their, their minivan, because that's what they would have. And then they would, there's a car seat there that perfectly suits them, and eventually you'd go, wait a minute! That's not your kid! And you, kid, whatever your name is, kid, I'm your dad, get over here! And you, get away from me! Now, no one would say about the parent who says, rushing after their own kid, being taken away, even though their own kid wants to walk away, no one ever says about that parent, you know, you really shouldn't be upset about that. In fact, if you're not upset about that, you're a horrible parent. If you go, you know, that's probably good. Doesn't seem like a nice person. I'm not not really that good of a parent, so. (sighs) Do you guys need anything? I got some extra stuff you guys might need. The responsibility of a loving parent in that scenario is to run over there and rescue their own kid, even if their own kid doesn't believe that they are being held captive. This is what's being written about here. It is the father who liberates from captivity. It is the father who chastises the kid who wanders away. And it is the father who brings back to himself. And this is why he says, I want to free them up that they may worship me. Because that's how they belong to me. This past weekend, I was at the men's retreat as well. This, the men's, I was talking with another guy too. He goes, men don't retreat, they advance. I'm like, okay, but men's advance doesn't really work as a, like, was that the men's advance? No idea what that means. But I was at the men's weekend this getaway, this men's retreat weekend. And the theme that sort of kept coming up over and over throughout the weekend was this theme of brotherhood. And as we began to talk about and understand what it meant to be brothers, it also meant then that if we're really to stretch out this metaphor of brotherhood, it means then that we also, all brothers, share a common father. A father who liberates from captivity. And I want you to hear a story of a guy named Eric who was with us who can give you a sense of what it's like to have been liberated from captivity. Would you guys please welcome Eric. Hello. I started attending Mariner's Mission Viejo about a year and a half ago. My wife's best friend invited us to attend. From the first day, the teaching really struck a chord. My spirituality was at a low point, and I had only just begun to realize it. I had started coming to the Thursday morning men's Bible study, but was not connected. I realized I desperately needed to go to the men's retreat, but it was full. Through the grace of God, Matt Alexander got me in at the last minute. Last year, on the first day of the men's retreat, I felt completely unconnected and alone. I had already decided to surrender to God, uh, surrender and let God guide my path. At the men's retreat, we identified our spiritual strongholds, roadblocks that got in the way of us, being all that God would have us be. One of the activities was to take a rock and write on it with a Sharpie what our spiritual strongholds were. I wrote alcohol. I had really started drinking excessively when the economy was collapsing and I was losing everything that I had worked for. It became a real problem. I would give it up to God. We buried that rock and planted a tree over it. I thought I could do it on my own. I didn't even make it home before I felt the need for a drink. Prior to this, I could always quit when I really wanted to, but this time, it became even harder, and it even got worse. I needed help. It was alcoholism, it was spiritual warfare, I think it was both. Found that help through Alcoholics Anonymous, and here at the church, through people of the second chance. This year, I have six months of sobriety, 
My marriage has never been better. I have an awesome relationship with my kids. And I continue to surrender to God, and continue to surrender, and God continues to guide me to healing and wholeness. I have never had more blessings from God. In all areas of my life, he is blessing me, my family, my business, peace of mind, and contentment. God continues to push me toward growth in all areas of my life. I continue to have challenges, but they do not overwhelm me, and I feel more freedom than I've ever had. Last year, I went up with the guys completely broken, but God began a good work in me. He has been faithful to continue it. This year, I have come full circle. Going through the retreat allowed me to see just how much I have grown and healed in just a year. At the men's retreat, I got to see God move. You cannot see the air, but when it moves through the trees, you can see how it moves the leaves and feels it. In the same way, at the men's retreat, you can see God moving through the men and feel his presence. I connected with other men, my, brand, my band of brothers. We all know that we have each other's back, and we are here to serve our families, the people we work with, our communities, our church family, and all of God's children. Remember, God is good, always. Right here. Great job, man. Great job. Could you sense in his own words this picture of being held captive to something and his own father and some way the brotherhood of the guys that were at this retreat in this community that have brought him back to freedom? I mean, you could ask Eric, my guest, after the, after the service and talk to him, and he would say, yeah, I worship God, and it does not feel like captivity. It feels like freedom. When we use the phrase, our Father, it is a dangerous phrase. It's an expectation to be led from captivity and into freedom. It's an expectation when we use the phrase, our Father, at the beginning of this prayer, it's an expectation that says, I no longer want to live as I am now. It's an expectation that says, belonging to God equals freedom. And belonging to some other God is captivity. And it is to say that the current state of things is actually a state of captivity. The Lord's Prayer is a, is a prayer that says the world is not like it's supposed to be. The Lord's Prayer, and specifically the use of the phrase, our Father, is that it's not one to protect the status quo. It's a desire for a different world. It's not for the passive, but it expresses a bold hope. It expresses a need for a father to be as a father ought to be. And expresses this desire of his own kids to live and to be his own kids. To say the phrase, our father, means that we take on our father's business. To be apprenticed to his work. If we're going to join Jesus in this kind of intimacy with his father, then it means that we have begun to sort of understand what it means to follow in our father's footsteps. Our father's business is now our business. It means to let go of things that are not a part of that business. And so we have to be careful when we say this prayer, specifically the phrase, our father. When we pray in this way or pray in the manner in which Jesus instructed us as a model, it has serious implications because we are full of examples in our own lives in which we have said or recited things without really thinking about what they actually mean. Most of us, when we grew up, if you grew up in the United States, at least once a week you stood up and said the Pledge of Allegiance. My daughter's in kindergarten, or now she's in first grade. And every Friday, they'd stand out there and say the Pledge of Allegiance. I guarantee she has no idea what it means to pledge allegiance to the republic. 
for which it stands. And yet, every day, it stand out there and say, I'm not against the Pledge of Allegiance, I'm just saying, she doesn't know what she's saying. Do you remember when you were a kid and the song lyrics that you knew that you had no idea what you were singing? When I was a kid, six or seven years old, I knew all the words to Rick James, Super Freak. I had no idea what she's a very kinky girl, the kind you don't take home to mother meant. But I knew the words. I knew the words to Salt and Peppa's Push It. Some of you know that song too. How do we know the words of this song? And not knowing at all what the implications were and what they meant, yet I knew all of these things. I knew the words of Steve Miller's Abracadabra. Not knowing what black satin, leather, and lace was all about when I was a little kid. And yet these are the things I sung and said all the time. And there's so many things to which we know the words, but we don't know the power of their meaning. And sometimes it takes someone else to say to us, like this is what Jesus is doing here, saying, this is what this is about. This, the Lord's Prayer, as we look at it over the next couple of weeks, and we don't have to cover all of it, we can't cover all of it today, obviously, but over the next couple of weeks, we're going to get into some stuff about how this prayer is dangerous. Look at this Bible scholar, a guy named Craig Keener says about this. He says, neither the Kaddish nor Jesus' sample prayer suits a complacent person satisfied with the treasures of this age. This is a prayer for the desperate who recognize that this world is not as it should be and that only God can set things straight. In other words, we get to pray this prayer over the next couple of weeks like a revolutionary. We get to pray it as if it was going to change the way things are. I mean, we celebrate our revolution, American sort of independence, and our revolution against the British this past week on Wednesday. And we do all kinds of patriotic things to demonstrate sort of our celebration of the American Revolution. What Americans do to celebrate our patriotism is eat. This is how we identify with our forefathers. We eat. My buddy and I are at this, at this you know, party, this 4th of July party, and there's all this food on this table. And we just are trying to figure out how we're going to honor our forefathers and our, their sacrifices in the you know, 18th century. And so we are looking at each other. And we started looking at all the stuff. And I take a plastic cup, and I put some beans in the bottom of this cup. And someone had actually brought French fries. Like, they had somehow fried French fries for, like, they didn't go somewhere and buy them. They made them. Oh, America. And so I took some of those fries, and I put them in there. And then my wife had made this, like, you know, Velveeta, whatever, kind of queso dip stuff. Which, by the way, we have friends who are French. And we're trying to explain to them how awesome this, this, like, cheese dip is. And we're like, you guys, this cheese is so awesome. You don't even have to refrigerate it. That's how great it is. And they look at us like, well, trust us, it's awesome. So I put that with all, it had all this sort of spicy, I put some jalapenos in there. And then I took a fork and I, and I handed it to my buddy. And we did, I did the same thing. And it was like, for America. And we ate this thing. Now, later on that night, he sends me a text message. Here, I'll show you. you can, I think we actually have it on the screen. Okay, the McGuire. He spelled my name wrong. That's okay. The McGuire, fries, beans, queso, jalapeno. May not have been the best idea for me. My face is puffy. My fingers feel like sausages. So, so, <laughs> so here's how I respond. The McGuire isn't about health or wisdom. It's about patriotism. To consume one is to demonstrate loyalty to God and country. So be it if our fingers get a bit puffy or our stomach's a bit weak. We eat it. We eat the McGuire because it's what Paul Revere's Midnight Ride was all about. We eat it because it's what our founding fathers would have wanted. Next screen. We eat it because it's a rejection of King George and unrepresented taxation. We eat it because we are sons and daughters of the revolution. We eat it because we're American. Yankee doodle. Kale pectate. 
You can hear the Battle Hymn of the Republic in the background, can't you? Okay, now, next, next slide. Then he responds, you're absolutely right, the McGuire for freedom, and I will eat until we are truly free. Queso! <laughs> now, there are all kinds of ridiculous things that we do to sort of align ourselves with the revolution of our country. The McGuire, you're welcome to try it out if you so desire, but just be aware of your puffy face and fingers. Sodium sort of spike. But when we're talking about the Lord's Prayer, what we ought to be thinking about is something that's a little bit more aligned with the real ideal of revolution. A true sense of allegiance. And it is to say, when we say the words, Our Father, at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, we're saying, in essence, I want an exodus from captivity. And what we're saying is, I'm also aware that when I choose to make an exodus from the powers and systems of this world, that their armies, whatever they might have you know, against us, will come after us, just like they did in Egypt. And it means that we live as his apprentices and no longer belonging to the world. It means leaving behind a comfortable captivity. The Israelites, as they're wandering around the desert, keep saying over and over again, remember how great it was in captivity when we were slaves? We had meat-filled pots every day, and here we have to eat whatever this food's coming down from the heavens. This is such a joke. We want the meat-filled pots back in captivity. It means choosing the wilderness food. And it means looking for nothing else to father us. Not our title. Not our job. Not our money. Not our kids' performance. Not our public perception. Not the numbing addictions that would say to us, they would give us a false comfort, not to the school we attended, not the square footage of our house, nothing else can father us except our father. To claim the words our father is to reject the systems and powers of this world. I want you to see what it says in 1 John chapter 3. You don't have to turn there unless you're really quick at flipping in your Bible. But this is what it says. Listen to the language here. See what great love the father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Now listen, this is a little bit tricky. What's being said here is those of us who belong to Jesus get to call God Father. He is our Father. And there is this exodus that is taking place for us. And right now, as we'll find out in a couple weeks, we're actually walking in the wilderness. And we are his children who are not yet fully what we ought to be. We say sometimes, maybe you've heard this expression, the now of being children and the not yet of being living as we, as we, once, as we one day will be. The NASB, the New American Standard Version of the Bible, has verse 2 translated like this. And it has not appeared yet what will be. In other words, this is... Our childrenness of our Father isn't yet fully realized, but we get a taste of what it's like now. We get a sense of what it means to be sort of living as Exodus people, walking out of captivity. If you want extra credit, you could read the rest of this chapter. And that there's this sense, even all the way through, like about verse 10, you get this sense that there's this freedom from a new kind of tyranny, not just from a Pharaoh in Egypt, but from the author of all evil, that he's overcome, and we leave his power. Let me ask you, 
What is that thing that is holding you captive from which you need to cry, our Father, and leave? Get an exodus. Receive a rescue. What is it in your own heart as you think about it? Because the story of God's people is a new exodus story. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I want to stay in captivity or do I want to come and join this sort of revolutionary escape? That I might join God in his work in a brand new courageous way, not in captivity but in freedom. Would you pray with me? Just as your eyes are closed and just for you in a moment, what is it that is holding you captive? What is it that seems kind of pleasant or acceptable or right or good because so many others are also being held captive? What is it that from which you need to say, our Father? I need you to rescue me. Jesus, we reject the idea. We resist the notion of broken fatherhood. Many of us in this room have broken relationships with our own dads. And even those of us in this room who have great relationships with our fathers know that our dads cannot love us perfectly. We reject the idea of broken fatherhood that you would have that fatherhood for us. We accept in great courage and faith that you are a good father. And that the principal role that you occupy among many other things in our life is one who rescues from captivity. Lord Jesus, we do not want to be in captivity any longer. We confess our willful sort of joining in to be captive in some other place, some dangerous, hazardous, unhealthy habits, addictions, behaviors, beliefs. And we're going to come running back to you. Our Father. It is in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's uh, stand.